0: diphaṇo yasapakohato savakasango tamayang bagawantang sadhamangasangang imahi saka rehi taraha avopite Hiapi Puja Yama Sadu no bante Bhagavas Chira Parinipo Topi Janatan Kampamanesa Dukkata-panakala-bhutai Pati-ganhatu Amhakak-dikharatang Hitaya-sukhaya sambo do Abhiwademi Suwakato Bhagavata Dhammo Namami <coughs> Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Sangang namami <coughs> namotasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Ugasa <coughs> bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Namotasa Bhagavato, Allahato, Sama, Sambudasa, Itipiso, Bhagavata, Allahang, Sama, Sambudho, Vijachavana, Sampano, Sugato, Logavidu, anu Purissa Dhamma Sarati Satadeva Manu Sanang Bodho Bhagawa Tamahang Bhagavan Thang Abhi Puja Yami Tamahang Bhagavan Sirasana <coughs> Suakato Bhagavatamo Sanditiko Akaliko EHIPASTIKO Opanaiko Pachatak Vetitab. When you he Tama hang damak, Abipujayami, Tama hang Supati pano, Bhagavato sawaka sango, Iyapati pano, Bhagavato sawaka sango, Sami Bhagavato sawaka sango, Purisa Yugani, Atta Purisa Pugala, Esa Bhagavato, Sawakasango, Ahunayo, Pahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali Karaniyo, Anuttara, PUNYAKETA Lokasa TAMAHANG SANGANG ABIPUJAYAMI TAMAHANG SANGANG This is what should be done. By one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Not busy with duties and frugal in their ways, Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, Not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy, let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish calm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill-will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection, this is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all saints' desires, is not born again into this world. So, Let's
1: Okay The uh, questions are coming we got some yesterday questions too Here we go Yesterday questions and today questions Not much. That's that's quite good. Okay. When I was meditating, my whole body feel, feel like numb or very light. At the same time, I saw a very bright light but sometimes still I can hear the noises. Never mind, that's not bad be contented and easily satisfied, not proud and demanding of nature. Sometimes the bright lights come, as I said, and the limiters, simply because your mind is getting energised. But you can still hear some of the sounds because uh, still the five senses haven't been totally calmed down. But you can still see something nice, which is good. Dear Rajan, could you... No. Re- oh. Could you repeat slowly what to say when a part of our body feels pain? You say, how? (laughs) No, don't say anything at all. And just see if you can just let it go. However, if it's very heavy pain, then try and maybe move a little bit and then carry on meditating. What right, What to say when we sit down and we start meditating? Say nothing. And by that I don't mean sit down and say nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> but what you can do when you start to sit down to meditation, you can do what I keep on saying, Program your mindfulness. If there's one ob- uh, one obstacle which keeps coming up, like excitement or um, sloth and torpor or fear or whatever comes up, just choose the one which is the most uh, problematic for you and you say that when I start to get excited, then I will not, I will I'll just relax. When excitement comes, also, when the light comes, I won't get excited. When the light comes, I won't get excited. When the light comes, I won't get excited. Easy. But you keep it simple in your own words. Repeat it three times. Pay as much, uh, as much attention as you possibly can, and then it works. Or, you can say that uh, tomorrow, the last day of the retreat only $50 or $100 notes no coins, no fires, no tests, no 20s <laughs> I'm just messing around what is your view or what do you know about Vajrayana and how it links to the historical origins of the Buddha it came much later, remember Vajrayana just came into Tibet about the 12th and about the 12th century or 13th century around that time of this, uh, this era so it's a more of a modern addition but nevertheless and there's so many different types of Vajrayana traditions and that's one of the problems there that uh, recently the poor people over in uh, Dhammasara sorry not Dhammasara, over in Dhammaloka that uh, there was a Wajrayana group, I won't say who, but they wanted to hire the hall for a couple of days, and they said, well, There's a monk there, but the monk had a consort. I said, well, What is this monk with a consort? And they called him a monk, but he's not really a monk. It's the same when I first went, one of the places I first went to as a layman to do some meditation, it was a place called Sami Ling. In Scotland, it was the same place which uh, Chogramchumpa started. Then he went over to the United States and he left this place in the charge of this Akong Rinpoche. And when I first went there, he looked quite impressive. He had a a nice robe on, a bald head, and, you know, sort of gave a little bit of instructions and talk. But then I was really surprised because at 5 p.m., he changed back into a suit, got into his mini-car and went off to the nearest um, town uh, where his wife lived. He was a, literally was a nine to five um, <laughs> teacher, <laughs> five days a week. And I thought, you shouldn't really call those monks, call them priests if you like, but that's in that tradition, that's what they had. Priests are not real, real monks. If you're a monk, you have to be celibate. There was a nun. celibate, But you've got to be, okay, here comes this stupid joke. This is my father told me this. I remember when he told it to me. And <laughs> He said, what fun does a monk have? No. What? No. I never said that. You did.
0: <laughs>
1: That's totally not true. We have much better fun than well, shall I say that? Anyway, we all have lots of fun without any um, any breaking any rules. But that's why sometimes it gets a bit complicated. People don't know who's what and what rules you're supposed to take and what rules you're not supposed to keep. And that causes a lot of difficulty for people. So if you're a monk, you know, you're a monk. If you're a nun, you're a nun. And the nice thing with Buddhism is, uh, real Buddhism, that that celibacy. If you feel like you know you don't want to be celibate anymore, then you leave being a monk. You leave being a nun, and you know there's no shame in that. You gave it a really good try, and you know you lived many years as a as a monk. I talk about someone like an Ajahn Chakra. You know he did a lot of good, and then he wasn't hiding anything. And then when he eventually disrobed, you know he carried on doing some teaching, but you know he got married. I don't think he will mind me saying this, but the first lady he married was a Thai lady. She was very wealthy, and you know she was a a doctor in the emergency ward in a big hospital over in Chicago. And so, after about ten years, the relationship fell apart. He didn't have a job at all, really, just a bit of a, a cleaning and maintenance job. That's all. And so, she was the breadwinner. But when they got divorced. What happens? They split the assets. (laughs) So he really cleaned up, he got so much from that divorce, he didn't really need to work afterwards. So he said he still had some good karma there. Anyway, I won't go further without getting into trouble. (laughs) Is the term bare awareness the same as pure awareness? No. Bare awareness, It's having a nice bear on your tummy. (laughs) You know, I wrote that book, Bear Awareness, and so I got a big bear on the front and said, this is real bear awareness. B-E-A-R. Put your hands down. (laughs) (laughs) But people like to have this idea of, like, kind of pure awareness is it the same as Sampajanya referred to in the Satipatthana Sutta? No. The bare awareness is when your sati, your mindfulness, is free or mostly free from the five hindrances. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, for those who know that Satipatthana Sutta, it begins with Vinaya loke abija domanasang. Every of those four satipatthanas, winee loke abija domanasang. And that is usually translated as having abandoned grief and covetousness for the world. And that never made much sense to me, even when I was a a lay person. You know, what is grief for the world? I mean grief if you know somebody has died. You know, a loved one has died. And covetousness for the world? I don't covet the world. I leave that for people like Donald Trump and, and all this um, Kim Jong-un and stuff. But I abandoned that type of covetousness a long time ago. But nevertheless, those words were there. And you, I encourage you, if you have a good brain, to learn some Pali. It's not that hard a, a, a language to learn. And then when you, you uh, learn the Pali, you start reading the Buddha's teachings in the original, you know, in the, the Pali, and you come across this amazing sort of, you call them insights, if you wish, or revelations, like those important terms, loke abhija and Domanasa, What the heck do they mean? And then I was looking through the, um, the Anguttara Nikaya, and, of course, they mention the five hindrances very often. And the first hindrance, you know, it's usually called sensory desire, but it means desire for the five senses, is usually called karmachanda. That's the first hindrance. But not in the Anguttara. In the Anguttara, many, many times, the first hindrance is abija. That's a synonym, a different way of expressing the first hindrance. And wayapada, That's a usual second hindrance. In two sutras, it says the second hindrance as Dhammanasa. So it's a synonym. And then of course, I don't know why I didn't do this from the beginning, I say a lot of time, is you look in the commentaries. The commentaries is where um, this was not the Buddha's word, but these senior monks, people like Buddha Gosa would actually um, explain what these words mean: loki bija and domanasang And there, in both commentaries to in the commentaries to the Satipatthana Sutta and the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, it says that those two that vinaya loki bija Domanasang means having restrained the, f- the first two hindrances. bhija means Kamachanda, Dhammanasang means the vaiapada. And they also explain another, uh, part of, of this, that when you, in Pali, when you mention the first two of a very common list, then it also means the rest of that list. So that meant, he said that when it says Vinaya, which means to, to discipline, restrain, uh, lessen. When it says to having lessened the uh, two hindrances, it also includes the other three hindrances as well. So both of those, one is in the Diganikaya, one is the Majima Nikaya, and they said that these words mean having really reduced the five hindrances. That's the explanation of of having abandoned grief and comfortlessness for the world. It means in the English, which we probably know much better, having re- really reduced the power of the five hindrances. And that actually changes Satipatthana, the explanation, very easily. You understand that to do mindfulness, you have to have hardly any hindrances left. Of course, the hindrances are what distort perception. You think you see what you you know what's out there but it's like a mirage. You're actually seeing something but it's not exactly what you thought it was. Anyway, so the pure awareness is sati without the five hindrances. Sampajanya, that means the purpose, what are you doing this for? Because you can be aware of anything. You can be aware of the wood in front of you, the bamboo floor. And you can be aware of it, thinking that, oh, I can get some of that in my home when I go back. That's very nice. That's not what the mindfulness is about, to actually to design your home. You do it sort of, uh, might, the mindfulness is there is to see the nature of stuff, see the nature of your experience, of Vedana, see the experience, the, uh, experience of chitta. So you can see, just like as it says in the Chitta part of the uh, chitta, part of the Satipatthana. You see, it's just chitta. that's all. It's not a me, not a mind, not a self. Just chitta. Anyway, your reference today, the perceived black towel later seen as it truly is white. Does this disappearance of perception occur through insight? No, it is the mind playing around. It's the mind telling you, you can see things in so many different ways. Why do you choose only one way? And this was amazing, that's one of the reasons why people say that sometimes they are sitting down and they feel they're expanding. I won't say that story about me doing that and being stuck, because I would have said that twice already. (laughs) That's where my fatness came from. That's why I mentioned yesterday, it's not fatness, it's anorexia. (laughs) Anyway, um, the disappearance of perception occurs through insight. No, it is just the nature of the mind that when you start getting very still and peaceful, it's like you take all the controls off your mind and you can start to play around and see things in totally different ways and do things in different ways. Sometimes perception can be very powerful. And this was one of those other hypnotic experiments which really quite shocked me when I saw it. They had a student under hypnosis. The experimenter had a a piece of wood with a forage nail in the end. And the experimenter convinced this student under hypnosis that this nail was red hot. It wasn't red hot, it was at room temperature. But the um, student who was under hypnosis really believed that it was a red hot nail. So when the experimenter touched the nail on the student's exposed skin, the student screamed in pain. Ah! I could understand that. What I never understood of the power of belief in hypnosis and. Uh, just how the way you view things can distort reality, a blister came up. That was weird. Because he thought it was red hot and he screamed. Actually, the body made a blister. When I saw that, I often reflect upon that. If somebody has a tumour, They've got a cancer. Can we zap it away through changing one's perception of what's going on in your body? Yes, of course we can. Anyway, if so, may I please have a suit of references to this and that of all the followers of Gotama's addiction to jhana? Okay. All the followers of Gotama's addiction to jhanas. I don't know exactly which one you mean here, but that um, sutta which I read out is called Parsadika Sutta in the Diga Nikaya, I think it's a 30 something sutta, but you can find it pretty easy enough. And that's where uh, the Buddha said if other people say you're addicted to jhanas, say yes. What's going to happen to you? You're addicted to jhanas. You'll get enlightened what causes make human beings be born into a male or female and how can we change that example female to male there are places in Thailand you can go <laughs> oh, you asked for that joke Now, a lot of time it's sometimes what you aspire towards what do you really want in your next life? So, it's a bit of craving. But you, it's pretty um, discriminatory when you said, what causes make human beings be born into male or female? What about monk or nun? That's quite interesting that when I was, went to Thailand, Bodan is a monk, I was told that there is like a third gender and that's, you've got like uh, peit ying, peit chai, that's male gender, female gender, and the third gender was samanapet, samanapet was being a monk or nun. it's like they actually gave you a different gender, you know, you're not sort of gay or transgender, but you were monastic, celibate, that was kind of cute. Dear Ajambam, how to control and overcome lust. Please advise. We'll get very old. (laughs) 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 Or be very young. Okay, here we go. I wasn't really going to tell this story, but it kind of came up on one of the interviews, and so I'll just tell the whole story. After five years as a monk... Again, you could travel around wherever you wanted. Now, this time I was only 28, 28 29. And so I, uh, for the sixth rains retreat, yeah, I was 29, still a young man, fit and healthy and handsome.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> In my arrogance. And so I found this beautiful monastery to spend the rains retreat. It's one of the most perfect monasteries I've ever found. In the north of north of Cheng Mai, up in the mountains, in Medang district. And remember, I was English. And this monastery, up in the mountains, number one, it was cool, you know, being up high, so you didn't have to worry too much about, you know, getting too hot. And it was uh, quiet. You only saw one truck a week. Come, as if you're looking in the right direction, come to, you know, do deliveries like post-in and then take it out again. And the, the village, which would feed you, was just over the ridge, so you couldn't see it, you couldn't hear it. Very easy in the morning, you go on arms round and they feed your pot. For once it was actually edible food quite nice food. It's a different cuisine up in the mountains in the northeast of Thailand. And the best part of it, because it was up in the mountains, it was in right in the middle of a tea plantation. At that time it was run by Ramming Tea, the big tea plantation up there. So I had nice food, a very sort of um, cool environment and I had all the tea I could drink. Not just that, they also they introduced me to that kombucha drink. Had a big bottle of that every afternoon. It was really paradise. and even better, a lovely cave. And I would go in that cave, a really big cave, after lunch and stay hours in there. I went till the afternoon usually. And that cave was where I got the story of what you do if you tread in a dog poo, because right outside the entrance to the cave, it was a very deep cave, it obviously had lots of bats in it, there was a papaya tree. And that papayas were the sweetest and juiciest papayas I've ever eaten in my whole life. They were good, they were so delicious. And so whenever I would see the papayas ripen, so I would actually tell one of the villagers, I can't take, get that papaya for me. So have a look at that papaya over there, you know, it's I'd <laughs> <laughs> give lots and lots of hints, I could do that. And he'd eat that papaya and it really was, it's just so delicious. Because it was made out of the bat poo. It was, <laughs> it was bat poo just transformed into juicy papaya. So it was a perfect monastery, nothing to complain about. I was there by myself, and when I asked the lay people, why aren't there more monks coming up here? It's paradise. And they said, it's too quiet for them. (laughs) And I I thought that's weird, but I didn't argue. So anyway, I spent the whole range retreat up there. and During the range retreat, I started getting restless. And you know what I tried to do to overcome restlessness? was trying to sit down, come on, practice meditation properly, watch your breathing. But then all these restless thoughts would, would come in. And so I it was a battle. I didn't have anybody else to talk to. That was a problem. I wouldn't tell the lay people who were feeding me what I was thinking about. <laughs> we got more and more of what I say is unmonkish thoughts. I was only twenty-eight, twenty-nine, started thinking of all those girlfriends What if she's still available? No, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, it was like that. It's like all day. And it was driving me crazy. And the more you try to stop those lustful thoughts, the more weird they got. And so after a while, I was saying, I don't want to think these thoughts. And so I bow to the Buddha statue in the main hall. That's the only thing to talk to. And I just said, please help. And an idea came up, and like an insight. Do a deal. As a Westerner. That's what Westerners used to do, do deals. <laughs> and my deal was, I would watch my breath most of the day, but from 3pm to 4pm every afternoon, if I wanted to think any unmonkish thought, I would let myself think those unmonkish thoughts. 3 to 4 p.m., please excuse me, This was my sexy time. <laughs> I'm being honest with you. And so I was, the rest of the time, mind you, behave. If you want to think like that, you have 3 to 4 p.m., off you go. But the rest of the time, behave. I thought that was fair enough. But then, when it got to 3 p.m., I was really tired still. It didn't work as I thought it would. It was still very hard to keep my mind on my breathing. But 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., okay, I'm gonna keep the other side of the bargain. I put my feet out, leant against the wall, and I said, okay, whatever thought you want to think, you can, I'm not gonna stop you, go for it. And then the next hour, this is no exaggeration, I watched every breath without missing one. And it was weird. How could that happen? You know, when I wasn't trying to restrain the mind, the mind behaved. Then I realized just where restlessness comes from. You feed it. When you try to stop it, you give it more energy. It is like an anger-eating monster. Get out of here, you don't belong in my mind. I want to be a monk. The more I tried to uh, stop those thoughts, the more power they had. And as soon as I said, okay, whatever you want to do, I was so kind and friendly to my mind. I didn't want to go anywhere. And I just watched those breaths with so much ease. That was weird, but that's really true. And once you can see those sorts of experiences, you have great insight into where these things like lust and sort of uh, think thoughts of revenge and other stuff come from. Dear Ajahn, what is life? What is the reason for life in this universe? If I tell you, be not much point, you meditating here. So you find out for yourself. <laughs> what is life? Life is basically the result of craving. You want something and this is where it, where, where it results. What is the reason for life in this universe? It's the result of you wanting things. If we don't want things. Things become so still. Life stops. Does rebirth happen instantly or is there an in-between state? Yes and yes. <laughs> you get reborn instantly into the in-between state. Please ignore this if this is a silly question. Why didn't you put that at the
0: Beginning
1: of the question. (laughs) No, it's okay. There's no such thing as a silly question. I've got to be very firm on that one, because otherwise you are just um, not respecting people's courage to ask questions, and you know you try and uh, answer it as best you possibly can. If you do ask a silly question, you may think it's silly, but sometimes it's some of the best questions you could possibly get. Dear Ajahn, how do I become aware of my ego? By reading your question and remembering that right in the middle of it is this I. How do I become aware of my ego? It's already there. But what about this ego? It's They always say that the sense of ego can be compared to an onion. You know the onions you cook your food with? That's a simile, an onion. Because when you start to use an onion, it makes you cry. It's got a lot of suffering in it. But more than that, look at the word onion, O-N-I-O-N. It goes on and on with an I in the middle. (laughs) That's how you become aware of your ego. The Ajahn mega, mega, make mega, mega emptiness. How can it be mega, mega, nothing in there, empty? Anyway, I saw a picture of Ajahn Chan. and it was as if he was saying, I'm here but I'm not. Can you read lips? <laughs> as if he was saying, you're here but you're not. What does that mean? It means that uh, the one who wrote this is here but they're not. I don't know (laughs) do you want to be here well you are here aren't you are you what's here instead of actually there was this um, he was a uh, what was that, a Hindu saint, uh, Mahari, no, no, Maharishi, no, not Maharishi, I forget anyway, uh, but he uh, was a very simple living uh, man and he was, um, he meditated just on the, the mantra, who am I? And he became quite well known, what's his name again? Uh-huh. Ma- yes, right, yes, thank you, yeah. Or who was he?
0: Mahashi Ramana.
1: Mahashi Ramana. Yeah, that's the one. But anyway, he kept on saying that was the way to full enlightenment. Keep on asking, Who am I? But then I remember just contemplating that myself as a young man, you just keep on saying who am I? You will never actually make the final breakthrough because there's an assumption with that question who am I assumes you are something You just got to find out what. So instead of saying who am I I would actually change that to who do I assume myself to be? Add the possibility there's no one in there. You're empty that what you take to be yourself It's not real. So if you want to pursue an an inquiry into the nature of you, ask yourself, who do you take yourself to be? Not who are you, but who do you take yourself to be? Do you take yourself to be your body? When I was 23 and 24 and fit and handsome, yeah, fair enough. If you're some gorgeous supermodel, yeah, fair enough. But of course, that doesn't last. No, but you know you're still there, or seem to be. So you're not your body. Are you your good health? Who do you take yourself to be? Do you belong to a particular race, gender? you, You can change genders these days. So are you really male or female? Who are you? or what you take yourself to be and also you go much deeper than that, more than body stuff, your education and all your achievements. Are you really a doctor? Who are you? You say, Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) He's still going apparently, Doctor Who. I remember watching Doctor Who when I was a kid. Anyway, uh, so are you your even stages of enlightenment? Is that how you are? Are you really a stream winner? If you know what you're talking about, you're not making these things up, you say, no, you disappear. You get less and less and less of you. You can stick any, any um, medal on. You got no wall left to put the certificate on, all your great achievements in life you vanish and disappear. So if you ask anybody, anybody here is fully, <coughs> is fully enlightened, anyone who puts their hands up is a fraud. You can't put your hand up. You just disappeared. that's all. Does that make any sense? No. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> that's like what Ajahn Shah. Asked me, do you understand? I said, yes. He said, no, you don't. <laughs> my mind used to be very courageous and full of energy, virya. Whenever I had to deal with physical illnesses, when I had shingles, I hid in my room and did a lot of make peace, be kind be gentle meditation. The shingle did not spread. During the meditation at one stage, the pain disappeared. All I could feel was sensation. It was so cool. There was no scars as well. During the last two years, I lost this sense of confidence because during COVID, many kept telling me and tried very hard to convince me that I should be very scared. Unfortunately, the mind seems to have succumbed to pressure from society. I feel so sad losing this very precious faith that I used to have. Do you think that I'll get it back? Thank you. Yes, people told you to be scared, and do you have more confidence in me? I tell you, do not be scared. Do not I would mention to you that if with um that uh, uh hypnosis that you can make like a burn appear on your your hand when there's no real physical cause for it, and you can make things in your body disappear like tumours. So don't be scared. Just have the confidence. It's amazing just what you can do with some nice deep meditation. So anyway, you should come to this place, don't go into society. The only society you should go into is the Buddhist society, that's okay. (laughs) Not the other society. Anyway, Dear Ajahn Brahm, If I am good enough, how can I improve? That's the point, you can't. (laughs) Who tells you you have to improve? That's abusive. You tell you you're not good enough. So refuse to improve. (laughs) This is who you are. And be at peace with you. Yeah, you've got some really weird qualities like bad jokes. But nevertheless, this is who I am, and I refuse to improve. As you all know, I've come on this retreat, or these type of retreats many times. I haven't improved. The jokes are the same. (laughs) Maybe I got a bit fatter. I know that's a kind of improvement. But (laughs) there's something really important in this statement, is... Why do we always want to improve? Who tells us that we have to improve? And there comes a time you know, in your life, you get older and sicker, you can't improve. You're on the way down. And I noticed, you know, after uh, my 70th birthday, that you know, as you get older and older, you, you, don't, you know you're going downhill. And as you go downhill, you pick up speed. (laughs) It gets faster and faster. (laughs) There's one good good angle of that, is the more birthdays you have, this is actually science, the more birthdays you have, the longer you live. (laughs) You can't argue against that, that's logic. For example, if I broke my precept and I think to myself, it's not your precept, it's the Buddha's precepts. And I think to myself, no, don't think to yourself, you would be quiet. <laughs> but at least I kept, you didn't keep anything. You kept the other seven and I'm good enough. Yeah, seven out of eight is pretty good. <laughs> is it? It depends which precept you break. That's why you know that many people... This is you no know, Buddhists over in places like Thailand. They say that, well, you know, it's you know, say like breaking the the like the precept about lying. It's only one lie. That's not that bad. And said, so, you know, I keep the precept most of the time, but every now and then business I have to tell a lie. And then I think, what are you actually saying? I so, said, well, you know, you've got to realize life is difficult. It's only one precept. So I tell them, okay. Then that's the case, then, I allow you uh, to break one precept every now and again. You can kill somebody. You, could, you can steal from the government. You can sleep with another man's wife. Why do you always say one precept is, that, you know, the things like, well, not really lying, but a glass of alcohol, they say. And I say, no, no, the whole, all the precepts are really important to try and keep the best you possibly can. And if you do break one, then let somebody else know. Let the police know that you've, you've murdered your mum. <laughs> <laughs> no, you would never do that. But in other words, admit what you've done. And just let people know. No punish yourself, but just learn how to do better next time. But with the precept, it's nice to let people know what you've done. That's one of the reasons why there was that story of this Sri Lankan girl who came to see me. She was about 17 and she's one of these girls who had actually grown up uh, with the monks in the temple in the sense that parents would bring her every day, or not every day, but every weekend. So they got to know us and they got to trust the monks. So when she came up to me and said, Ajahn Brahm, can I speak to you? I'm in big trouble. And I asked her, well, you know, what is that trouble? And she said that she was pregnant. You know, she had slept with her boyfriend and now she's pregnant. And of course I said straight away, have you told your mum and dad? She said, no, that's why I've come to you. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was you know, a little bit surprised, but... I, funnily, I was actually quite touched that she trusted me so much and I could be of service to her. But more than that, I said, well, why, why do not you tell your mom and dad? She said, they'd kill me if I, when I told them. I need you to do that for me. And that really shocked me. You parents, why are you, your children so frightened to tell you when they're in big trouble? Sometimes your kid may have gone into trouble with drugs. Can they come up to you and say, Daddy, I'm in big trouble, I've been caught with drugs by the police? Or are they too afraid to say that? At a time when your children, they've made a mistake, when they need you the most, they're too afraid to share the information with you. Which is one of the reasons... When you do express your love and your sense of care to the people in your family, please let your children know, son, daughter, the door of my heart is open to you no matter what you do. You can tell me anything, especially as long as you tell me the truth. I will not scold you. You make mistakes, but I'm your mum, I'm your dad. I'm here to help you when you do make mistakes come and tell me. I don't approve of the mistakes, but it's nice you come and tell me so I can be of service and help you. That's what mum and dad does. And I think it's just very frightening when a child is so afraid of their parents, they won't tell what they've got up to. But anyway, that's with some of the precepts. I am good enough You will make mistakes. That's why when the precepts for monks and nuns, when we break a precept, what do we do? We have to go and tell another monk or nun, this is what we did. And then once you've told the other monk or nun what you did, then they say, be more restrained in the future. And that's all you do, because acknowledging to somebody else you've made a mistake, then you can actually do something about it. I suppose, you know, just to make this example more real, I suppose I should tell you when I made big mistakes. This was many years ago here in uh, Perth. The many of these Thai monks are being found out, you know, people like Ajahn Yantra and others, being found out with, with girlfriends and mistresses. So I thought, you know, it's good to be honest, So, on a Friday night talk, you know, with a full house of people listening, I put my head down and I said, "Um, It's probably a good idea that I confess some of my faults. And I said, Many years ago, I said, I spent some of the happiest hours of my life in the loving arms. Of another man's wife. We kissed, we hugged, we loved each other. And she was another man's wife. <laughs> <laughs> and a few people were heading for the door. <laughs> until I said, here, there was another man's wife, that was my mum when I was still a lay person. <laughs> my mother was married to my father. It was another man's wife. And we hugged and kissed and we loved each other. <laughs> and I said, that's what you've got to be really careful of. Incomplete information and you judge a person and never let them back into your respect anymore. So don't judge too harshly. Listen carefully. Dear Ajahn Brahm, Why don't monks and nuns eat after 11am? We do eat after 11am. We eat till 12 noon. (laughs) Don't know where we got the 11am from. 12 o'clock, like solar noon. And it's very convenient whenever we go to Malaysia uh, or to Singapore, because solar noon is the, the time we have to stop eating. And in Singapore, solar noon is always just about 1 p.m. So that means that when, like, people can get hot food for us, it's easier to eat. Now, one of the problems here is sometimes you go to funerals or other important things, like you know, dentist or something, or uh, some sort of checkup, and then where can you get food? You know, before. Uh, Twelve noon. Even the fish and chip shops don't open till like a quarter to to, to noon. And so it's, it's very hard. After a while, we find out, that's you know, one of the things which we get to know for for monks and nuns. If you need to sort of if you're out somewhere, where you can get a meal, you know, a nice hot meal before noon. So if you want to know that, if you don't know that already, I'll let you know. <laughs> And the reason is it's supposed to be just you've got to cut it off sometime so that, you know, you don't always harass the low people. Remember, most of the food will be when we go on arms round. We don't want to go on arms round in the middle of the night or in the evening when you're having your own dinner. So we always do that in the early morning and get eating out of the way. You've got enough food, like fill up the car before the long journey. We fill up our cars just in the early morning and that's enough for the day. It's much more convenient, one meal a day. And why specifically cheese, chocolate and lollies for supper? (laughs) (laughs) That one is a difficult question because monks argue so much about, a lot of it is because it was not specifically prohibited by the Buddha. If it's not prohibited, then it's allowed. I don't want to ask them more, but you don't have to eat that in the evening. If you don't feel hungry, then don't eat it. It's just a little bit of an allowance in case you need something extra. To my understanding, even if we attain the fourth stage of jhana, we'll become born again. At what stage will we be giving up self? That the jhana is not sufficient to become enlightened, but it's necessary to become enlightened. Without the jhana, you don't get enlightened. Just with the jhana, it's not enough. You need one other ingredient. Just like if you want to find the treasure in the jungle, you need the map and you also need the flashlight. If you've got the map and the flashlight, it's a good chance you can find the treasure is one not the other, actually not the jungle but in a cave. So the, the flashlight is the jhana and the map is the dhamma you know, taught by an enlightened one. So if you've got those two, you've got the flashlight and the, the map, then you'll find enlightenment. So if you attain the fourth stage of jhana uh, you not necessarily be born again but you haven't become enlightened yet. If you've got the fourth stage and you've heard the Dharma from an enlightened one, there's a very, very good chance that you'll find the true enlightenment. This is verse 372 of the Dhammapada. There's no jhana without wisdom. There's no wisdom without jhana. When the one who has both jhana and wisdom, you are in the presence of Nibbana. It's one of my favourite sayings. Dear Ajahn Brahm, does Anapana Sati fulfil all the elements of Satipatthana? The answer is yes, if you do it properly. Not just being aware of the breath, but just all those 16 stages fulfills the four Satipatthanas. That's in the Anapanasati Sutta. You can go and read it for yourself because it's getting late. Why there's not much stories about other Buddhas before Siddhartha Gotama? I think because many of those other Buddhas got a few stories about Kassapa, but some of the other ones is too long ago. That's one of the reasons. Because yeah, they didn't have many books and maybe all the books they just all disappeared now. The libraries have closed after many thousands of years. One interesting thing, though, that you know, there has been you know, many, many great libraries in the world, and one of the biggest of those libraries was at Nalanda. You know, there's a big Buddhist library there, and, at, and I think the 12th, uh, 12th century, our era, that it was invaded by the Muslims and totally sacked. All the books were burnt. And there's Lots of cases like that, there's the Library of Alexandria and that was also just burned to shreds. Because sometimes, you know, with knowledge, there's power. And if you have too much knowledge, sometimes the other, um, usually secular forces, will destroy those books, burn them, just like in the Hitler's Third Reich, burning all the books. Because books, knowledge means power, and dictatorships just want to keep the power to themselves. So a lot of times, over the years, the books and stories disappear. That makes sense. Okay. Full of meditation, full of matter and happiness before meditation. Equals blissful meditation, but lots of happiness and energy afterwards. But not mindful, peaceful energy. Almost buzzing. When more low energy before meditation, less happy, lots of letting go, peaceful meditation, lots of peace and mindfulness afterwards. What is going on here, please? Find a balance. I don't know. You're full of matter and happiness before meditation, you have a blissful meditation, lots of happiness, great! And energy afterwards. But not mindful, peaceful energy, almost buzzing. What's wrong with buzzing? Sometimes it may be you don't know how to use that energy. Sometimes it's like in powerful meditation, it's like having a Ferrari car. Now, many young men think, oh, a Ferrari car, that would be cool. They're not able to drive it, it's just too powerful for them. Maybe that you're having some strong meditation, but you'd have to learn more about how to drive your very powerful mind. Does that make any sense? Okay, I'll quit one on the head. Is it okay to share some meditation experiences to someone else? For example, our friends and relatives. If not okay, why? To prove to them the benefits of meditation, the joy and the peace. Sometimes it's one of the sayings of the Buddha: only discuss your know, sort of virtue with other virtuous people; only discuss meditation with other people who meditate; only discuss wisdom to other people who are wise. Because otherwise, it sometimes creates jealousy, and sometimes it creates this negativity. The other people really try and put you down. They think, "Ah, oh, no, you're not doing that. You're just saying that." Because sometimes the your wisdom, your um, peace in meditation, your precepts can be quite challenging to others. Especially if they come from other religions. Because sometimes it is a challenge to them. So one of the reasons why is be careful. If especially deep meditation or, you know, like things like virtue, just why? Why you keep all those precepts? What's wrong, you know, with, I don't know what, with taking drugs. They're legal in many places now. And anyway, isn't um, tea a drug? Coffee? Isn't that a drug? So you do take drugs. <laughs> so sometimes you can get into all sorts of silly arguments and sometimes is that really benefiting you or the other person? Instead why not instead just show by your your conduct, your kindness, your speech and actions, just you know, how your practice is in, increasing. Words can be twisted, but conduct is much easier to actually be and to be seen to be real. You're a better person, and that's actually where people see the benefits of meditation. How long Nimatranjana experience will normally exist? There is no normal there. These are supernormal states. So you can't stay. It can't be anything from a moment to an eon or two. <laughs> That's true. If you sort of die when you're in these deep meditations, you can't, but anyway, if you did, you get reborn in these blissful realms for eons. How to help people with addictions? If it's addiction to the joys of meditation, don't help them, they help you. But here they say, smoking, illicit drugs, etc. Thank you. Now there was a, a friend of mine, he, was, uh, he became a monk eventually, and he, was, uh, he smoked a lot of marijuana when he was young. And he said after ordaining, it took him about three years for his brain to be feel free of you know, the fog of that marijuana. And he said it was amazing that because he was a monk for, for about two or three, four years, he actually could persist in actually just uh, not having any drugs at all, being able to be free of the fog of his mindfulness because of so much marijuana. So be careful. You know, it takes a long while to restore your mindfulness to its natural power. When Aj- Ajahn Chah asks you the question why, perhaps you were thinking about someone or, someone or your own self. No. If so, his answer, there's nothing there, makes sense. Not nothing there, there's nothing, I believe. Did you by <coughs> try afterwards to analyze the teachings of this conversation? Not to analyze it, but to allow it to teach me. You don't think about it, you don't contemplate it, you put it in front of you and then see what happens. Dear Ajahn Brahm any meditation to prepare and get ready to welcome when death comes please advise yeah let go I mean that's a very important thing if you don't let go what happens you're about to die and you're saying all these jobs you still have to do and you never get everything ready doesn't matter how much you prepare there's always something else you have to do which is one of the reasons why that when death comes, when the grim reaper knocks on your door this evening, also not this evening, on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and what's happening on Monday? Halloween. Halloween, yes. When death comes on Monday night Halloween, make sure you've got a lolly for them. That's a trick or treat, isn't it? <laughs> no. The, the real death just is part of life and it's, your body dies. The mind continues on, but then it goes and gets another body afterwards. So just understand this is an important part of life, no need to be upset about it. How many of you are going to die? <laughs> But sometimes, and how old do you have to be to die? Anytime. Anytime. So you're not too young to die? Are you? No. You can die at any time. This is one of the reasons why when somebody young dies, you should never say, oh, that's a shock. They're so young. Why did they die? It's part of life. And if you understand that dying is just uh, changing from one life to another life it's nowhere near so painful you know, I mean emotionally challenging for you and uh, you know, that story of my own father died that um, I never felt sad again because I looked upon his life like a wonderful concert, I enjoyed his life, I loved him Even all his bad jokes, I would always laugh at them. (laughs) And after he passed away, it was like the end of a concert. It's beautiful looking at life that way. You enjoyed all the times you had together. You wouldn't have given up for the world. But when he died, thank you, Father, what a great performance. So if you go to say, when I die, I'm going to die, you know. So please live long. No. <laughs> come to my funeral. And when I do go there, I don't want any tears. I want you all to stand up and give me an encore. Yay, well done. And when my coffin goes you know, behind the curtain, keep on clapping and it will come out again for
0: <laughs>
1: a second bow. <laughs> or whatever. Sometimes that happens, you know, there was in Adelaide uh, cemetery. i I got all these stories from these um, funeral directors. Because over the years, you know, you do funerals again and again and again here in Perth, and you get to know all the stories of what really happens. And uh, in Adelaide, the main burial place there was in like a, a little dip. So when it rained the rain would actually come into one little place in the hollow, and it was very muddy soil. So often they said, what happened was, they'd done the, the, the funeral, the burial, and they'd lowered the casket into the hole, and then there would be a heavy rainstorm, and because of the heavy rainstorm, and the water wouldn't drain that quickly, so it all filled in the hole, and the coffin floated up again. or over in the open cremations in Thailand I've seen this many times that when they uh, cremate somebody they always put them on their side in the coffin never on their back because if they put them on the back the coffin just burns away pretty quickly and because of just the way that the heat affects the muscle structure of their body they're laying on their back and then very slowly, they start to sit up, and then usually one of their hands, whichever one burns the most, starts to <laughs> and points at somebody. Very embarrassing if it points at you. <laughs> so the welcome when death comes, when death comes. It's just a nice way of getting rid of the body. But there was this one guy, I always remember him. Uh, he had a very bad cancer and he decided to be, do something different. He decided to have his funeral before he died. Why not? Because if you notice at funerals, people say all these wonderful words about you. and All these nice eulogies. and And so you miss out on those. You don't know what they're saying because you're dead at the time. So he said, I want to hear those eulogies. And so he had it a couple of days before he's due to die. But also, he said, he can see actually what, who says the best eulogies and who doesn't attend the funeral because, you know, for one reason or another they don't think they're important enough to attend. They're too busy doing other things. And then in the last two days he can amend his will. <laughs> Why not? I know you can't take it with you, they always say, your worldly wealth, but there was this lawyer who figured out how to take his worldly wealth with him. You know, he was a very sort of wealthy man, being a lawyer most of his life. Any lawyers here? Please don't sue me for this. (laughs) 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 So he told his wife, you know, when it was and certainly he was going to die within about three or four days. He said, Go to the bank. Remember those two big suitcases which we use when we go on holidays? Get the two biggest suitcases, take them to the bank, and fill them up with $100 notes. There's plenty in the bank. So I want both suitcases filled with millions of dollars. And I want you to, my, where I'm sitting in my bed, where I'm laying down in my bedroom, go into the attic above and put those two suitcases directly above my bed, you know, just above you know, where my arms are, so when I die and I float up, I can grab those two suitcases <laughs> and carry them with me to heaven. <laughs> now, she'd, she'd argued with him for most of his life, but he said, I'm not going to argue with him now. So that's what she did. She went to the bank, she got the permission, got all the, the, the money out and put them above his bed in the correct positions. And of course he died. And a couple of days after he died, when the funeral was finished, that you know, she checked up on those two suitcases. They were still there. He said, stupid husband, he should have put them underneath the room, not above. <laughs> I know which way he was going to go. anyway <laughs> okay this is some more question over here why monks and nuns are allowed to have cheese and dark chocolate in the evening what other food is allowed or drinks Oh, so much variations of ev- and everything so just whatever's on offer just take that <laughs> i spend day not hours days arguing about these things So anyway, the last question. Can Buddhist ideas and knowledge of the mind live along neuroscience? Yes. The brain cannot be used to explain all the facets of human knowledge and capacity. However, there are neurocorrelatives of many emotions such as joy and happiness. How do these kindly coexist with the mind? Neuroscience is great but you have to expand your boundaries of neuroscience to understand that everything cannot be fully explained just by what happens in your brain. Remember, I was a theoretical physicist, and part of that is quantum physics. And in quantum physics, the way we understand reality it's very different than most normal people uh, understand a reality. And it's best explained. Any physicist here, theoretical physicist? One of the best examples of that is the uh, simile of Schrodinger's cat. It's a brilliant sort of, he never actually did this experiment, but it was such an easy one to describe. The problem it would create was very well known. If you put a cat in a box, a live cat, and in the box and there's enough oxygen there for it to survive, but in the box there is a cyanide capsule. And it's it's cyanide capsule is broken as a result of the of a quantum process which is the decay of a radioactive cesium atom. If it decays then it will break the, the vial, the, um, what's it called, the poison will be secreted and the cat will die. If it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't decay in time, then the uh, poison will not be secreted and the cat will not die, it will live. It's a quantum process which is run by, you know, the decay of an atom is a quantum process. And so it's like a 50-50 chance that that cesium atom will decay and the vial of poison will break, 50% chance. So no one is absolutely sure it's 50-50 whether that poison, the cyanide will break and the cat will die. Before you open the box, is the cat alive or dead? And the answer is neither. It's a truth, it's a reality, a hard reality. The cat is not alive, the cat is not dead. It's in this this quantum probability state. That is the truth. It's not just some sort of conjecture. And that was the problem of quantum mechanics. Reality as we know it, only exists when someone observes. To be able to see something we create reality. When it's not seen, it's not created. A Tree falls in a forest, no one's there to see it. Does it fall or does it not fall? Quantum science said it hasn't fallen, but it's not not falled. It's in an in-between state. And that's a reality. Do you understand that? You don't, know because you have to get used to these weird results of quantum physics. A, one of the other weird things which I love talking about is um, this universe. I always was wondering about this universe. How big is it? When you get to the end of the universe, the limits of the universe, what's actually at the limits of the universe? Ask any um, astrophysicist, and they say this: this universe is only a, a certain dimension. It's you know it's not infinite. It's only got a certain amount of space in it. And it was a very, very neat proof of that, which I remember doing even at A level standard. This universe cannot have an infinite number of stars in it. And anyway. That proof was there, so, this universe has got limited volume. If it's got limited volume, it means that there must be some edge to this universe. What's beyond the edge? Is there a big wall? Is there just a big iron, like what they have in Singapore, like wire fence with pictures you get shot if you go past this, uh, this fence? I remember just fantasizing about that, you know, in the bus to school in the morning. And then realizing that you don't have to have an edge to things with limited space, and the answer was, of course, planet Earth. Planet Earth has got limited area. It's got no edge to it. If you keep going from here in any direction, you know you won't come across any you no know, real walls, no edge to this planet Earth. But you come straight back where you started from, planet Earth is curved, so it's got limited space but no edge to it. And the same with space, it's got only a finite volume but no edge to it. That's known, it's called curved space. And now you go to the next level, time. I always wondered, how can there be a beginning of time? Makes no sense to me. Since there's a beginning of time, what was before the beginning? It can't be anything before the beginning because it's the beginning. So how did it start? What caused it? It can't be any cause because a cause means it must be before the beginning. And more importantly, the end of time. Is there an end of time? Instead, how about curved time? No beginning, no end, but finite. Well that means you don't have to have a creator at all. You don't have to have a cause. There is no beginning. There's no end, but it's finite. Curved time. And because I know that's a truth, curve time, I'm just looking at the clock, hasn't curved back again yet, (laughs) it's actually (laughs) 9.15, so I think I better finish off. Uh, So actually with neuroscience, what Buddhism and meditation does, it allows you to see things in a totally different way. You're not contracted to see things always in the same way, the way you're taught. And see things in other ways. That's why, you know, sometimes I really rail against a scientist. You cannot dismiss evidence just because it doesn't fit. Any result of any experiment, which you do, you have to take into account. If it's a real result, you have to fit that in there somewhere. But unfortunately, in much of modern science, and I say this with knowledge, In much of modern science, it's rejected. That person who uh, saw that boy with no brain. I remember asking some neuroscientists over in Sydney, what happened to that? And they said, they've seen it, it's real. The CT scan was done many times of this boy with no brain. And it doesn't make any sense at all. It's real. It happened, they said they filed it in the anomaly cases. In other words, they don't know how to explain it, even though it's real. So they can dismiss it and not really think about it. So, anomalies are challenging our understanding of the universe and ourselves. And we have to accept those challenges. And see, neuroscience, some of it is patently false. But there's too many reputations, too many grants at stake, and no one will dare challenge it. Too many people will be out of a job. And if I don't finish quickly, I'll be out of a job
0: too.
1: (laughs) Okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay. There's a couple of things I get quite passionate about, and that type of science really gets me going.